Could we see that again? <laughs> yes, Please. we can. And so popcorn is invented. <laughs> Fire Angel, huh? It's amazing. Okay. Well, it is good. So, Dr. John kind of was creepy tonight, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, he talked about remote viewing in a way that he didn't mean it, and then there's other he, things. He can see through a door hole. Makes you kind of have the jitters. <laughs> well, actually, though, that's really, really neat. It is. Have you ever... Uh, shot a laser beam like against a wall or something so that you could see the pattern interfering. It's fascinating because you look at it and you can't hardly focus on the little spots of light and they kind of almost wiggle around and it's, it's because the light beams are interfering with each other. It's fascinating. Light is a wave and a laser is monochromatic and coherent. Monochromatic means all the light is the same frequency, and coherent means it's all in phase, all goes together. And the result of that is, if the beam reflects just right, it cancels out the beam coming in, so it looks black. And you can see little black spots there right in the middle of the light, which are where it's canceling. And that's kind of called an interference pattern. So think about that a minute. If you have a light beam and you send another light beam perfectly in sync with it, it'll make it disappear. We do the same thing in, in audio. Sound is a wave. Mm -hmm. And some of you have those noise-canceling headsets. How do those work? Pretty good, especially <laughs> some of the new ones. But what happens, you put the headset on and they have little microphones. The microphones listen to the noise in the room. And the noise makes the headset vibrate in and out. And every time there's a noise that is going up, the electronics invert it and make the diaphragm go down the same exact amount. And so the sound disappears. Oh. It cancels out. It's still coming in, but it's canceled out by other sound that you put in. So they call it noise-canceling sound. Well, there's very fascinating things you can do with that. When he talked about the guys at Stanford shooting a laser beam through a small hole, and by the way, why didn't they just open the door? <laughs> you know, that was my first thought. You know, if they want to look in, just open the door. But then when we saw their lab, they didn't have a wall. You can't open the door. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they shoot it in there and then they have it reflect off, and then they pick up the reflection of that. Each one of those reflections, the amount of light's going down, 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 and then they want to see how much will reflect back through the hole, and it's a teeny, tiny amount. Do you realize that you could do the same thing with sonar? Sonar is used underwater. It's how they find submarines and things underwater, and it's sound because sound transfers long distances through water. So they send a ping, the sound goes out, and if it hits something, it reflects back, and they hear the reflection, they can actually get a picture. 
That's how my fish finder works. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to go like Edison, you know, and have no? your son out. Do I take the fish <laughs> finder. <laughs> but uh, do any of you have these uh, speakers that Apple makes that you put in your, in your room so you can listen to music? And you know what they call those? They call them pods. No, what do they call them? Yeah, they call them. Pots, right? <laughs> if you look inside those, and you can see graphics on the internet and other places showing what's inside, they have all kinds of speakers in this little thing, and it, it radiates out in different directions. has a little computer in the top, so you can talk to it and tell it what you want it to play, and, and it does some really amazing things. Well, what if you had the microphones located in different positions in that little speaker, you could actually listen to the way the sound comes in and draw a picture. So with just sound, you could see better than those guys did with their laser through the keyhole. Now think about that for a minute. One of the things that I, I enjoy doing, not that I'm a tease, I'm a researcher. <laughs> but you know Akiva. Yes. My German Shepherd. I do. Beautiful, beautiful dog and very alert. And German Shepherds have these ears and they, they're mounted on, on radar things so they can point. <laughs> and it's really fun. When the Kiva's looking the other way, I like to kind of chirp. And he, he doesn't turn around. He just points his ears backwards. <laughs> and if you block your mouth and you kind of chirp, so it hits the wall and then bounces in. Then he turns his ears towards the wall. But with the ears, he can find out exactly where something is. And by the way he adjusts them, I think he can even kind of tell how far away it is. It's amazing. Well, you can do really, really good things with, with sound. With my fish finder, I can tell how big the fish is. I can tell how deep it is. A lot of nifty things. And how accurate can these sonic viewers get? Well, ask the, the baseball players. I mean, the bats. <laughs> That's clever. The bats do their little high-frequency chirp so high that it doesn't keep people awake at night, but bothers the dogs. They make a little high chirp. The chirp goes out. It's sound. It hits an object and bounces back. And they can use it to find insects. Pretty accurate how far away they are. They can do all kinds of things. If you've ever tried to <laughs> get a bat out of your house that's flying around, you find out it works pretty good. If you have something there, like a swatter or something, you're going to hit it and he's coming along and you know you can't see very good because they don't see very good. But he's doing that little chirp, chirp thing. And, so, and, you, and he can see it and dodge right around it. It's really fun. It's really neat. Bats are amazing. We could talk about bats, couldn't we? We could. But I want to talk about Tobias's diamond pencils. So pencils, according to Tobias, are diamonds that were formed but not under pressure. The graphite, lead, the graphite in the core of the pencil is exactly the same atoms that would make diamond. You just need to make your pencil with a little more pressure and a little more temperature. 
<laughs> it's just a really amazing yeah. thing. I think it's awesome. So I want to do something really different okay. today. Is that okay? Yes. I'd like to introduce everybody to my little robot friend. Oh, turn him, turn him. Can you see that very well? R. Uh, yeah. Oh, there he is. Can you see him? So his name is R. Okay? And R is a very special little robot because he's very smart. <laughs> and I'll go ahead and put his antenna on him there. Can you see that? That's how he communicates. Okay, I, I hope you can see that fairly. Ooh, diamonds. There he is, R. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> R is so brilliant. He can answer questions. Yeah. You can throw any scientific question you have at R, and he will give you an answer. So let's try this out. Uh, Darius, are you ready? <clears throat> okay. I would like to ask anybody out there on the internet, um, how about Thomas? Do we have an internet? <laughs> okay. Guess what, guys? We're we're not having a very good connection tonight. <clears throat> the, they're having a hard time getting it up. <laughs> I have a theory about it. We got some complaints this past week. Um, we had over 11 million views last time. And the people that host the video told us that we overloaded their system. <laughs> Goodness. Uh, and I think they may have turned us off tonight. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out what's going on. So anyway, I would like someone here to give us a random scientific question we can ask R. Anything. OK. <clears throat> Any questions? How many states of matter are there? The question is, how many states of matter are there? <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and hook up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you look like a yogi. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Not expecting that. <laughs> He's processing. He's putting on the internet. <clears throat> Don't get to see it. <laughs> How many states of matter are there? Is the the answer's coming in? How many states of matter are there? He said it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, let's get another science question here. That was good. What? Do you have a question? That was good. Who's got a question? Do you have a question, Noah? Yeah. We'll work on it <laughs> under pressure here. We don't have all of our internet buddies yet. Okay, need another science question. Anybody? Okay, Mars. What is Avogadro's number? <clears throat> what is Avogadro's number? <laughs> Calculating. <laughs> <laughs> you guys mess. What is that R thing? <clears throat> it's coming. It's coming. Six point oh two times ten to the twenty. Oh shoot, I don't remember. <laughs> <clears throat> I 
hey, we've got internet. <laughs> so now we have to start behaving. <clears throat> How sad. For those of you that, that just tuned in <laughs> over the internet, <clears throat> I would like to point out <clears throat> that the problem was with your local internet connection. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like it was a systemic thing. But as we just shared, I think uh, last week we broke the bank because we had over 11 million views of Science Live. And uh, we have been hosting that through a service and they told us that <clears throat> we overloaded their system. That's no good. Yeah. I told uh, our guys, oh, maybe a year ago, I said, I want Science Live set up so we can never run out of capacity. I want Science Life so it'll work if there's a million viewers. You think they believe you now? Well, <laughs> I forgot to update that memo, didn't I? Anyway, <laughs> we'll get her updated. We've got uh, enough science to live the whole world, don't we? We do. Okay. Um, I'm loving this R&R. &R. R, my little robot friend, is still looking for questions. So hopefully our very, very persistent Science Live students that couldn't get in are finally in. They didn't get discouraged as they went down the optimism curve, <laughs> they coming back up and we expect Sam. So what we're looking for is R is a uh, science intelligence computer, and so we're asking R questions and we're answering, I, I have an optical link <laughs> with an invisible fiber so that I can relay his answers. Okay, so anybody that is is with us now that would like to send in your question, go ahead and shoot it in, and we'll be answering those questions. Meanwhile, who else here with us live today would like to ask a question? Mark. What's the heaviest element? The question is, what is the heaviest element? It would really be nice if he would go faster. <laughs> I'm getting an answer. He wants to know who's asking him why. <laughs> uh, it's Mr. Mark, and, and what's the why? <laughs> well, you're, you're playing Trivia Quest. Okay. You know, um, <clears throat> the heaviest element is a city in California. That's a strange answer. Elements are collections of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And every time you add another proton neutron to a nucleus and another electron, you get a different material, a different element. And so, you know, we have carbon, we have oxygen, they get bigger and bigger. We get up to big, big atoms like uranium that have a lot. And we have a whole periodic table of all these elements. And I just happen to have Edison's right here. But the point is, in fact, I actually do have Edison's periodic table. The, the point is that the atoms start getting up to a size where we're reaching the 100 mark, where we have 100 protons, 100 electrons, 100 neutrons. And then the elements get heavier because they're man-made. 
So we actually discovered, actually when I was fairly young, we discovered that you can use accelerators and you can take heavy atoms and combine multiple ones together and get a very small amount of yet a heavier element. And as we started discovering the elements like 101, that would be the atomic weight, 101 electrons, protons, 102, 103, 104, 105, they were all named after where they made them. Berkeleyum, we named them after all of these California cities. So the heavy ones are. Now we've even got more and we're naming them. I guess we ran out of cities in California. We named a lot of different things. But it is very difficult to say what is gonna be the heaviest because as soon as you say it, they'll make one heavier. So as long as you've got another proton, neutron, and electron that you can jam into a nucleus, you can make a bigger atom. Uh, some of these atoms are unstable, which means they don't last long. They fly apart, but so does uranium. It's unstable. That's why we say it's radioactive. It breaks down. It sends messages to Josh's Geiger counter. <laughs> okay, um, do we have any questions coming in from the Internet yet? Yes. Okay, here it comes. What is it? This is... Um, the question is, other than science, what is your favorite subject? Where'd that question come from? That came from Mr. Rambert. Mr. Rambert is asking you, are, other than science, what is your favorite subject? Wait for it. <laughs> what? R says his favorite subject is perfume. <laughs> why is that? I think you should explain why is that. Because yeah. R was a gift to R from me. <laughs> so this is some of your alien stuff? Yes, and they got the exact right R, and it actually smells very good. I, and it's I cologne. I hope you can see that R. And if you yeah. push the top, out comes particles. Particle elements? Particle elements. <laughs> elements, yeah. So, whew, good. Did you see that? Yeah, did see that. <laughs> so uh, that's why R's favorite uh, science, besides, anyway. Okay, what else? <laughs> Let's um, keep this moving along. What is the most flammable element? Who's asking? This is from Aya Olivia. Olivia. Okay, the most flammable element. Now, when you talk science and you say words like most, you have to be sure that you define what you're, what you're saying. In program, we have to learn to you know, declare our variables. So you gotta define what you mean. So what does most flammable mean? Does that mean that it makes a bigger fire? Does it mean that it ignites easier? Does it mean that it burns faster, which would make it more explosive? And every element that is flammable has different parameters that you can look at, and science studies those different parameters. Hydrogen is the first flammable element, because it's the first element, right? And hydrogen is flammable. What does flammable mean? Flammable means that this is a substance that would like to combine with oxygen. So 
to form a new substance, usually CO2 and, and, and something else. But uh, things that won't combine with oxygen uh, are not flammable. So hydrogen is flammable because it'll combine with oxygen. That means it burns, and it burns in air, which is made up mainly of oxygen and nitrogen. So if we say the most flammable, one good choice would be hydrogen. And certainly, it is the most flammable if you talk about in terms of flammability limits. How much hydrogen do you need to have? Let's say this is a, a flask, and we put hydrogen in here with air. How much hydrogen do you need before it becomes flammable? And it turns out that in the case of hydrogen, it becomes flammable with just 6% hydrogen. If it were natural gas, you have to be clear up near stoichiometry for it to be flammable. But hydrogen has very broad flammability limits. You can have a very lean mixture of hydrogen to air, and you can have a very rich one, and it will still burn. So in terms of flammability limits, hydrogen is one of the fastest. If you talk about the easiest to ignite, Hydrogen is one of the easiest elements to ignite as a flame. When you ignite it, that means you apply heat, which overcomes what chemists call the threshold energy for the reaction of combining to take place and be self-propagating. And with hydrogen, the amount of energy needed to be supplied is one-tenth of the amount you need for hydrocarbon fuels like methane and like propane and like gasoline. Okay, but then if you talk about ignition temperature, interestingly, hydrogen has to have heat supplied at a higher temperature to ignite it than hydrocarbon fuels. And that seems kind of backwards, but it is a fact. So you have to have a higher temperature heat, but you only need a teeny amount of calories. So it's a good question, but if you're gonna ask, questions to a scientific robot, you have to realize they can get real complicated. <laughs> so you used a big word called stoichiometry. Stoichiometry? What does that mean? Gosh, I don't know. What is stoichiometry? I love this connection. Mm. <laughs> mm. Stoichiometry is a scientific term meaning the correct amount of reactant with reactant. In other words, in the case of burning hydrogen, it would be the correct amount of hydrogen with the correct amount of oxygen. Now, if you really want to understand this, then you need to study the graham crackers and milk principle. Okay? <laughs> Have you ever tried to dunk graham crackers in the milk and eat them. And if that's too complicated, it also works with the Cheerios in milk. Maybe that's a little easier to follow. So you get a bowl of Cheerios, you pour the milk on it, and you eat it. The Cheerios are all gone, and you still have some milk left in the bowl. So what do you do? You get some more Cheerios <laughs> to use the rest of the milk. And pretty soon the milk's all gone, but there's still Cheerios left. So then you get some more milk. And that's how a whole box of Cheerios goes away, okay? Well, it's the same thing in chemistry. If 
you have a container of hydrogen and oxygen and you ignite it, well then all of the hydrogen will be used up unless you run out of oxygen. If you run out of oxygen first, there'll still be some hydrogen left. So if you have exactly the right amount of hydrogen that you have for the oxygen, then they'll both all be gone and you'll just have water. And it turns out in the case of hydrogen and oxygen, the right amount is H2O1, H2O, which means you need to have twice as much hydrogen as you have oxygen. If you have exactly that ratio, you have stoichiometry. If you have a little bit too much oxygen, like you have H2O2, then you don't have stoichiometry. So stoichiometry is when you have exactly the right proportion of reactants to completely complete the reaction. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that would be a magic bowl where the Cheerios <laughs> take just the right amount of well, milk. So when you're done with the Cheerios, you're done with the milk. Game over. <laughs> Same with the graham crackers. <laughs> okay? Okay. All right, very good. Next. This is from Ricky Belladonna. Ricky, hey, what's up? Why do leaves change colors? Why do leaves change colors? I'll put this one into R. Ooh, little sound. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, that one came back <laughs> fast. He says, because it's fall. <laughs> well, that's true. He's smart. Yeah, he's, he's really clever. We need to work on the human engineering a little bit, okay? But really, why do they change colors? He thinks we should ask Peugeot that. <laughs> you want my, my perception on life? Uh, uh, he or? does. So we can enjoy the beautiful autumn So colors. we can enjoy the beautiful <laughs> colors. That's like his answer. Yeah, you it? go from green and it changes and as it dies, it's amazing. There's some real interesting thing about colors. You know, a scientist loves colors like everybody else does, but when you start studying them, you find out some really, really interesting things. Why are leaves green? And you start thinking about it and you say, well, because they give off green light. And that's not accurate. The reason they're green is because they don't absorb green light, they reflect it. So the light coming from the sun has all the colors in it. The red and the blue especially are pulled into the cells in the leaf to perform photosynthesis. The, the two colors of light that do the heavy lifting in making oxygen and making food for the planet are the light that is blue and the light that is red. The green, the light, the leaves say, hmm, can't use you. So they just reflect it back out so we see the green light come from them. Isn't it interesting then that the reason that leaves are green is because the leaves don't want to keep the green light. Shoot it back at us. Kind it of fascinating, is. it isn't is it? And it isn't the green light that makes the green leaves grow. It's the red light and the blue light. Now photosynthesis is a really interesting process. That is a long name for the process of taking sunlight and carbon dioxide in the air and sticking them together 
So you get fresh new oxygen and you get hydrocarbons which become food, okay? That's the process that feeds the whole world. So CO2's floating around in the air. Where'd the CO2 come from? Well, it came from us. We breathe in oxygen. We use the oxygen to power our cells in our bodies and it gets burned up by combining with carbon and we breathe out CO2, which is where they get the fizz for soda pop. <laughs> CO2 is the fizz in soda pop. It's also dry ice, isn't it? If you freeze CO2, if you get out a soda pop and you freeze it, your normal freezer won't be cold enough. It's got to go colder than, uh, than just plain freezing water. Water freezes at zero degrees centigrade, dry ice at 20 degrees below zero centigrade. But if you get it cold enough, then it becomes dry ice. We call it dry. If you take a piece of ice and let it melt, it turns into water and it's all wet. If you take a piece of dry ice and let it melt, there's no water, it just turns straight into CO2 gas. Okay, we're talking about photosynthesis though, aren't we? So <laughs> photosynthesis is the process of taking oxygen from the air and sunlight, excuse me, CO2 from the air, carbon dioxide from the air and sunlight and turn it into oxygen and to food or wood or organic material. This process is actually very complicated. We have to, to be able to combine those, we first have to get the energy from the sun and it comes as light. And so the leaves have cells that have a, a chemical called chlorophyll. And chlorophyll captures the red and the blue light and then it begins a reaction that combines that sunlight with the CO2, breaks the CO2 apart, uses the carbon, kicks off the oxygen, so the forests are making new oxygen forests and clean up all the CO2. CO2 comes out of our automobile engines too, except for the hydrogen ones, okay? <laughs> but then, when that reaction's all completed, you can't do it again because you used up other chemicals. And so photosynthesis has to then make something else and then make something else, make something else, something else, something else, until it's finally ready to get some more sunlight and repeat the cycle. So that's called the photosynthetic cycle. And it's, it's a really complicated chemical cycle. For some of the steps, you need yellow light and other colors, so there's more to it. But most of the energy that plants capture from the sun are red and blue. That's good to know. So when leaves die, when it gets too cold and so the, the tree can't circulate its, its fluid and it's called sap. Yeah, it's like a tree's blood, only it's mm -hmm. not red. So they call it sap. 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 Okay. Anyway, <laughs> then the leaves start to die and the chlorophyll cannot be recycled. So it gets used up and then pretty soon you get these beautiful colors, which means it's not absorbing the red and the blue again, so they start reflecting, depending on the kind of tree. And it, it's like you said, it's all so that fall would be beautiful. Okay. You're doing a great job, R. Should we give them, let's give them a hard one now. What you got? This one is from Monet. 
Monet. Uh -huh. and, Monet. and she wants to know why Dr. Billings is Peche so Monet. smart. Dr. Peche Monet. <laughs> I didn't say Dr. Peche Monet. <laughs> oh, you didn't? Which Monet is it? Dr. Peche Monet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's he's it? not that smart. He's just making it up as he goes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this one's from Leighton. What Leighton. is a supermassive black hole? You know what would really be fun would be what? to know where Leighton's from. Do you think Leighton would be willing to tell us what city Leighton's from? Mm -hmm. yeah. Come on, Leighton. Leighton, come on, just type in your seat, please. We really want to know mm -hmm. where this impossibly difficult question is coming from. Do we get it? All right. We'll be watching. It's coming in. While we're waiting for that, we'll ask our. So, what is a supermassive black hole? Yes. He says it's really big. <laughs> it's really big. It's really, really big. And it is true that black holes have all different sizes. They're bigger and there's bigger and bigger and bigger and biggest. Um, as I recall the science, when you have a sun the size of our sun, it can turn hydrogen into helium, but suns also make other elements. In fact, in the stars is where all these elements are formed. Remember, uh, in Berkeley, for example, and one of the heavy elements is called Californium. I mean, but, and, and I don't think they were all made in California, by the way. I mean, let's be fair, give Massachusetts some. But the, the point is that um, when you start combining uh, protons together to make a bigger nucleus and electrons, then you get all the different elements, and these are made in stars. And the chemistry of being able to make those is such that a bigger star has more gravity, it's, it's bigger, it's hotter, and it's able to make elements that can't be made in a little peanut star like our sun. Now, I'm, I'm glad our sun isn't huge. If it was the size of some of the stars, well then Earth's orbit would be inside the sun. Probably too big. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's, it's a perfect size for our solar system. But as stars go, it's a fairly small star. A supermassive black hole is one that is made by the end of life of a very, very large stellar object stellar, or star. Okay? He's from Canton, Georgia. Canton, Georgia. Yeah. So the hard questions are coming from Georgia. <laughs> well, thank you for that question. It's a good one. Okay, let's do another one. Let's do another one. Oh, I don't know about how to pronounce that. <laughs> Maybe it'd be kind of fun to call on somebody here tonight to help on this question. This one's from Malachi. Malachi? Yes, hmm. what is the most used programming language? What is the most used programming language? Hmm. I wonder who could answer Malachi's question. Maybe Matthew. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to uh, get one of the great 
enthusiasts here to come up to the microphone. Matthew, would you like to come up? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I like this. So instead of asking R, we're going to ask Matthew. And, you know, just give us your best science. Ask the question again, please. What is the most used programming language? Dun, dun, dun. Well, first, thank you, Malachi. Um, <laughs> I would guess HTML. I don't know. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. All right. Maybe we should actually get to someone that does a little more programming. Um, why don't we ask Thomas? Thomas, come on up here. <laughs> By the way, I need to introduce uh, Dr. Thomas Iyer. And here he is. Come right on over here, Thomas. I'll get you right on camera. There he is. Let's, let's show Dr. There he is. Give us your big smile. Okay. It's a pretty nice smile. Now, he's going to be a little bit unhappy with me for doing this. That's not my fault. Nope. But I just want to give him credit of being the guy in charge of the Cellus Data Center. Oh. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, he's, he's really, really brilliant, Dr. Thomas. And so the question is coming from a person named Malachi. Would you read the question to him, please? What is the most used programming language? Well. <laughs> <laughs> By who? Yeah. Exactly. It really depends on the environment. So. Um, Java is very, very common, especially for uh, Android environments, but also for parts of the web. And then um, most of the actual operating system that you run, I, whether it's Mac or Linux or Windows, that's all going to be built in C. So those are very popular. And then there's, depending on specializations that you want to do, it changes. <laughs> what, what's your favorite programming language? kind of hard. <laughs> uh, I really like um, both Golang and Python. I think those are my A lot favorite. of people are liking Python. Isn't that a snake language? It is. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Well, thank you. I, I really think you deserve to be in the spotlight. Yeah. That's <laughs> it. I froze on that question. So did R. Um, yeah, he's a robot. He well, he, he told me what he thought it was, and that's why I called Malika, I mean, uh, Matthew and Thomas up here. What he think it was? He, he says that there's a lot of programs on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> now we know what he does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tony, stick with your perfume business. <laughs> okay, we have time for one last question. We're going to be clear out of time, and this one will go directly to Dr. Peje Monet, so make it good. I'm going to change the question now. <laughs> no, 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 she's actually, no, come on, let's hear the question. Okay. It's from Charlie, and he wants to know how far away the sun is from the earth. It's perfectly far enough away so we can enjoy all seasons in Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> actually... I think she got that right. They actually space the sun from Kansas City. They do. Yeah. It's center, it they is do. the center it's the of the center US. of football. <laughs> right. For, for some. That's what the colors found out. 
You know, brown. <laughs> okay, get it? Yeah. Actually, though, the distance of the earth from the sun is one. Is that right, John? It's one. One what? One. one. It's like either hand. One. One, one is two. one. It's one. One astronomical unit. What is that? The distance to the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's actually true. Also known as what? 93 million miles? Mm -hmm. and what is that in kilometers? No. <laughs> yeah. One astronomical unit. And how long does it take light to go from the sun to Earth? Tell us. It's traveling. I have to know how fast it's driving. <laughs> if it's driving at the speed of light, if, if the sun has a big solar flare, uh -huh. how long before we see it here? Because the light from the solar flare is coming at us at the speed of light. So. How long does it take to make the journey, 93 million miles across space to get to the Earth? A, one second. B, 10 seconds. Three, 30 seconds. Or D, 13 minutes. I like the three, 30 seconds instead of the C. I did that to help you. It's deep. <laughs> it's farther than you think. Okay, well, I want to thank everybody for joining us today and uh, especially like to thank our. Uh, we should have them come back, don't you think so? <laughs> I love this. <laughs> I'm not expecting it. <laughs> I'll see you. <laughs> thank you. See you next time. <laughs>